Stress, burnout, and bad behavior are rampant, and we see signs of a greater search for meaning in the fallout from the Great Recession. Today, we're going to be speaking with some people who started out on a journey to discover their real self, and along the way, started a company to help others do the same. So stay tuned. This is Chris Brandt here with Sundish Patel. Welcome to another future video podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to ask everyone to think about subscribing to the channel. Currently, 96% of the people who watch our videos are not subscribers, and that subscription really helps the channel. So two monks, a startup founder, and an investment banker walk into a bar. Well, I don't know about the bar part, but they did get together to start a company to help leaders discover their true selves, helping them free themselves from the trappings of the ego. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard summed it up as, to upbuild is the key to maximizing human potential. So today we have with us upbuild founders, Rasanath Das and Vipin Goyal, to tell us what self-realization is all about. Welcome, Vipin and Rasanath. Thank you for having us, Chris and Sundish. Well, thanks for Absolutely. being on. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, now, you know, Sundish has been deep, deep into the uh, the process you guys have going here, and uh, you know, he's constantly raving about how his uh, realizations are are sort of driving a whole new Sundish here. Um, and so I, I really want to dig into that and, you know, what, what all you're doing for him, that's, that seems to be working because he seems to be a much more stable individual. Um, but before, <laughs> before we get into that, I just want to ask you, tell me a little bit about the, or sort of the origin story of Upbuild. So Upbuild began within the walls of a monastery. Uh, that's not how it was designed. <laughs> we didn't know that we would be starting a company doing what we are doing. Uh, that for me personally, my journey was, uh, I had wanted to, um, work in, on Wall Street since I was in eighth grade. Um, I also wanted to own a yellow convertible and a blue motorboat. And, <laughs> and the joy of the convertible very specifically was not about me having it, but others seeing me in it, um, which was very clear to me at, <laughs> at a very, uh, very early age. Uh, and uh, in my pursuit of uh, that career, I right before my investment banking offer, I had a near-death experience mm -hmm. that uh, really made me question uh, the values and principles that I'm actually basing my life on. Um, I was a seeker even before that, but the near-death experience and staring death in its face uh, really led me to think um more deeply about how I'm using my time, uh, but the but the inertia of the ambition still kept me going. So banking was the next thing to do. But when I when I took uh, took up my banking offer, I decided to live in a monastery on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, uh, which also gave life to my spiritual calling. And so I had this extreme dual life for two years. She was living in the monastery by the principles and lifestyle of a monk, and at the same time having uh, a job on Wall Street as an investment banker <laughs> between 2006 and 2008, which was also very historic <laughs> in the context of the financial markets. Um, and what I saw in, in that was uh, the 
Uh, the nature of the human ego, of course, banking, we'll say pretty obvious. Uh, I experienced it on a day-to-day basis. I, I saw success and the thin veil that existed between success and emptiness uh, was pulled when I saw it from the inside. Um, and I thought that uh, going to the monastery and living in the monastery full-time would be a, a completely different experience. And what I saw was the human ego followed me into the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not joking when I say this, but one of the one of the deepest desires which I discovered later on was to be the best monk that ever walked the earth. <laughs> um, and to be known for that, right, which uh, was paradoxical. But in, in really digging deep and trying to understand the nature of the human ego and how it comes in the way of us fulfilling our potential, finding meaning, and truly building more meaningful relationships uh, was what led to the start of our build, our own work on ourselves, uh, that we started to slowly share, very organically share, which then found uh, its way into organizations. And, and here we are doing what we're doing. My connection in the upbuild was I actually saw Rasanath give a TEDx talk in New York City. This is back in 2010. And there were 16 speakers. And there was something about his talk that immediately attracted me. And what it was, was he had shared a story of his own vulnerability that I thought, I not I don't hear this type of story very often. It wasn't the type of story where I show some vulnerability and then I rise up like a phoenix from the ashes and everything is great in the end. It was like, it was about one of his failures and it started and ended there. And there was no, there was no redemption in that, in that same way. And I thought it, the authenticity of what he shared immediately want, I wanted to get to know him more. And that was one piece. Another piece was, I met these two monks, Rasnath and our other partner, who I've always, I've been surrounded by many ambitious people in my life at various educational institutions and organizations. And here I had met these two people who were just as ambitious as everyone else that I'd always been surrounded by. But that ambition was not about themselves climbing a ladder, creating more wealth for themselves, but it was oriented around service and Mm -hmm. helping others. And that was, again, something else about it just drew me further and further in. And, and then the last thing I would say is the experience, Chris, that you talked about with Sandesh, uh, getting some upbuild magic. Well, I, I had that experience myself. I attended a workshop in 2013 on the Enneagram with Rasanath and our other partner, Hari Prasad. And that experience changed my understanding of myself. Mm. It was, I mean, that weekend was the inflection point of a longer journey. But over the next few years, I realized what I wanted more than anything was to help the two of them reach more people and impact them in the way that I had been impacted. And and I'm so glad that you introduced what happened to Sandesh because that that is the experience I, that that is the fulfillment of that desire. Because as you both know, I mean, Sandesh and I went to high school together. We've known each other a long time back, but that connection. This is exactly what um, I would have hoped for: is to bring more and more people 
to those types of realizations because they're so powerful. Well, and and then so you went and started Upbuild to help do that, right? Um, what? How, how did that? How did the, the the desire to turn this into a company start? So we didn't uh, we didn't necessarily want to turn it into a company. We were monks, <laughs> and uh, and we 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 just started teaching um, and creating workshops, which was which was the start, um, and. At a certain point in time, we felt that we needed more organization around what we were doing. <laughs> and uh, it was a very organic process where one thing led to the other. And at a certain point in time, we uh, also experienced, um, you know, a crossroads, which was, mm-hmm. which was well, a, a monastic life requires more cloisteredness. We were actually being pulled in the other direction. We were... So, sort of going back, at least for me, I was going back to to uh, to my old identity in some ways. Yeah, um, and so it it took a, it took a little while digging, uh, going internally, asking a lot of people and mentors some um, some very deep questions and taking guidance to then feel that um, this was our service. Uh, also, in some ways, the fruition of our monastic experience uh, to actually bring everything that we had learned, uh, to organize it, and to take those very monastic principles to the work world, uh, which, you know, for a lot of people may seem like, uh, <laughs> wow, that's distant. Um, <laughs> how can that be applicable here? But uh, for us, that's, that's the core of the work is uh, bringing those very principles that are very based in character and understanding the ego self-awareness uh, that that we start to bring outwards into organizations. So it has it yeah. been a very organic evolution. Well, yeah. the, the other thing is that there were people who attended those early workshops that were in- individuals who attended an Enneagram workshop, for example, and then came away thinking, this was so powerful. Can you do this for my team? Can you do mm. this for my organization? So again, it was, we sort of fell backwards into it. It was never an intention. Let's go serve organizations, but people pulled us into their organizations because they found the underlying work powerful. Yeah. Well, the demand was clearly there, huh? Um, so, <laughs> so tell me, you know, we've talked a, a bit so far about ego, right? Um, and I think there's a lot of, uh, different interpretations of what ego means, right? I mean, we sort of the classic Freudian ego and, you know, all the, all the different, you know, concepts of ego. But, you know, what is ego? Ego is an identity, an identity that we think we should be and not who we are. Uh, it's the simplest okay. way that uh, we define the ego, but it has a very profound implication in how we live our lives. Because when we become uh, attached to who we think we should be, rather than who we are, uh, all of our behaviors are oriented to proving to the world and to myself that I'm indeed who I think I should be. And that fixation drives everything. And the fear that I may not be who I think I am and projecting to the world now starts to fill up my existence. So that's what shows up as the as what we call the ego. And and is that always internal or is that sometimes external where, you know, people have a lot of expectations of you. And so you try to shoehorn yourself into that vision of of yourself. It almost forms a vicious circle, so to say, 
So uh, the only way I inherit the expectations from people is also when I feel in some way um, inclined to it, inclined mm-hmm. to fulfilling it. Um, and so uh, I'm already oriented in a certain way. And then, uh, then people expect. And then I start to fill that expectation, uh, which then uh, puts me further, deeper into that cycle. Right. So now, before I know, I'm so far down the path uh, that uh, many times uh, we don't know how to extract ourselves from it. You know, I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, like I have a big ego, but that's what makes me successful. You know, like why is keeping your ego in check or at least understanding your ego so important in life? So uh, the ego comes with its set of gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people say that, uh, yeah, I mean, I am who I am because of the ego that I have, uh, there is some partial truth to it. It gives, it gives a, it gives a set of unique gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we can exercise and really do well with it. The challenge is that every gift is accompanied by a shadow, and the shadow here is the fixation on the gift, mm. right? And uh, when we fixate on the gift, when we want validation for the gifts that we have, at some point in time, um, it becomes more about the gift playing out in the world and doing its good. And suddenly, it starts to get anchored in what you call self-absorption. This is true for um, for uh, every uh, ego mechanism. It starts to become self-absorbed. It starts to become about the individual. And as soon as that starts to happen, trust breaks down. And uh, we are not necessarily thinking clearly, although we may think we are thinking clearly. Now, here's the, the illusion of it, right? right. So, so we are caught in the web. Uh, and uh, that's also what uh, diminishes our own sense of awareness. Is we are now in this in this place where we think that we are still doing what it takes to to quote unquote exercise the gifts. Right. The shadows are running the show in the background. You know, Chris, your question about the ego and how the ego helps us, but then how, how does it get in the way? And I was yeah. thinking about you know, Rasna talked about this idea the ego defined as the identities of who we think we should be. And so Mm -hmm. just to make this really concrete, if I'm a leader in an organization and one of those identities for myself is that I am, I'm a very intelligent person with, with very strong logic. It's one of the identities that are really important to me. And anytime that identity is at threat, I will, as Rasanath said, want to prove that I actually am a very logical person or, and I will defend, defend that identity. So now I'm in mm-hmm. a meeting with a group of people and I'm presenting an idea. And that idea is being constructively criticized by someone else in the room. How do I take that? And Without awareness, when my ego is acting, I can take that as a direct threat to my identity as a very sound, logical person. And so now what I start to do is I need to attack directly that constructive criticism to prove that I am logically sound and and defend myself. And this is what you see happening in organizations. I mean, this is just a one very simple example, but you see that happening in organizations all the time versus if I'm able to recognize that that um, 
okay, I may be logical sometimes, and I may not be, um, but that's not who I am. Who I am is not defined as I'm always logically sound. Now, when we're having this conversation, how can I approach it with much more openness? It's like, oh, there's something I might not have thought about, which is not a threat to my ego or my identity. And does, how, how does the conversation change all of a sudden when there's much more openness and inclusivity that I can bring. Only once we acknowledge something can we then move to acceptance, can we then potentially transcend. But it starts with recognizing that I do these things. And that's what's so powerful about some of this work with the Enneagram is like, it's not just fatal flaws with myself. I recognize it as part of the typology and I can see, okay, I don't have to be so ashamed that it's like, I'm not alone in this. And therefore, maybe that gives me a corridor to say, okay, you know what? Yeah, I, I'm raising my hand. I do this too. How do I start working on it? What, what do you see that leaders are seeking when they come to you? So uh, on one extreme uh, is, you know, relationship breakdown, right? Founder relationship breakdowns. Uh, where founders are not communicating, it's affecting the, the the decisions of the company. It's causing that's a very common problem. Very common. Uh, it's causing a lot of agony, and especially because founders are also dependent on each other. Many times, the relationship is not interdependent; it's codependent. <laughs> yeah, and and so, but then it shows up from a point of view of trust. So that's that's on one uh, on one extreme of the spectrum. The other extreme of the spectrum is someone who's starting a company. And who wants to make sure it's almost like prevention is better than cure? Who wants to make sure I take every step um, in the in the right way with a lot of awareness? Um, and so it's uh, it it's good to engage with someone who can actually help me do it. So from a point of view of coaching, which is a lot of what we do uh, in leadership development, um, those are two uh, extreme starting points. So, so Sundish, you, you, I mean, here you are, a, a, a bright young leader. <laughs> what, what was it? <laughs> Thanks, what was Chris. it that uh, that brought you to this? I mean, like, what was sort of the motivating factor that got you to do this? Well, I ran into Vipin with you in New York after twenty some years, and I was expecting him to tell me about his amazing career that he was already having, right? Going to Harvard and going to McKinsey and. You know, having a startup of of his own, selling it a group. I I couldn't wait to talk to Vipin, and when he told me, uh, I'm really exploring the ego, and I'm and I'm really doing this enneagram stuff. And I met these two monks, and it's totally changed my life. And I'm like, wow, right? And and I think what for me is there was already some internal curiosity, not as much and not as early in my age as Rasanas, but definitely a curiosity of why. Why do I feel this way? Why do I act this way? I've made some mistakes, Chris. You've you've uh, been witness to quite a few of them, <laughs> and um, I feel so bad about them afterwards. Like yeah. I really beat myself up about it to the point, like that I go into this unconscious, like you know, I know what we, we in the enneagram. Um, the upbuild folks would talk about your the levels of consciousness, and I could see myself like 
not being myself and doing things because I was scared of something else. And so I've always had these little battles, man, you know, you and we've talked about our childhood, Chris, you know, like there's so much baggage everywhere, right? I just want to make sense of everything of like, why am I acting the way that I am acting? Why do I feel the way that I'm feeling? I think my journey started before, but this one just took me into like a rocket ship and it gave me a framework of something that I can understand. I went to a workshop for nine hours on a weekend. I took, you know, I never take notes and I took a ton of notes. Like I, I have pages and pages of notes um, because I was like, man, th this is what I do. And what is it only been like five months, six months? And I'll tell you, my self-awareness today is still not where I need to be, but it is so much better. And I can already see how I am changing the way I, I, I act, how I feel, uh, how I treat people, the things that I say. Um, do you know the, the, the resistance to not drinking wine every night, which because <laughs> I love it, you know, is like, why do I need it? You know, why, why is it that this is causing me to do this, you know, or why do I feel like eating a deep dish pizza right now? You know, <laughs> because I'm usually like upset about something. I'm not like happy about something. So I feel like I need something that makes me feel happier. And I think the pizza is going to make me feel happier. <laughs> sounds like you have a lot of sensorial issues. <laughs> um, you've all mentioned the Enneagram. Uh, what is an Enneagram? The Enneagram is a personality typology and Ennea comes from the Greek root nine, because in this uh, typology, there are nine distinct personality types. And each type is defined by a few different essence qualities, what the type is all mm -hmm. about at its core. And those essence qualities exist at sort of varying degrees of consciousness. Uh, Sandesh talked about the levels of consciousness, which is really, you can think of, uh, substitute the word consciousness, you could substitute awareness or health for that. And um, mm -hmm. so there's, they're defined, each type is defined by its essence qualities, as well as a basic fear. Um, and that fear is driving all of our actions, all of our behaviors, all of our choices, all of our relationships. And when we come in contact with the Enneagram, we will be able to relate to many of those fears. But it once you do the investigation to find the most primal fear for oneself, you can you actually you see how much of my life is in response to these insecurities that, that I'm, that I'm mm. carrying. And so the other important dimension, the reason why we find the Enneagram so powerful is it's not just, uh, categorizing our existing behavior. Do I show up as extroverted? Do I show up as introverted? It really focuses on what's underlying the behavior. What are the motivations mm. and the insecurities that are driving? And also, there is this vertical dimension of the, it's not just a horizontal framework, there's a vertical dimension of health, which really gives the Enneagram purpose. So the idea is, how do I keep moving up the levels of consciousness? Because a single type at different levels of consciousness, you wouldn't even imagine that. How could these two people be the same type? And that's all... Um, 
th- that is because of the lo- different levels of health. So a sa- the same two different people of the same type with different levels of consciousness look completely different. And our goal here is how do we ourselves keep moving up to become the best versions of ourselves that we possibly can. And by doing so, impact all of the people around us and encourage them to also rise in their consciousness. You know, obviously, an Enneagram helps you kind of, you know, ask the questions about yourself, about, you know, what, what, what am I and how do I think and what do I fear and things like that. Are there, what, what kind of, what kind of tools can, you know, people utilize to help them get, you know, healthy as you describe it? When you begin to recognize and understand your own type and the Enneagram framework, um, you also begin to see how uh, the fears are holding you back. They are making you um, respond and react in ways uh, that are both unhealthy for you and the rest of the rest of people around you. And so some mm-hmm. of the tools that we use, of course, the Enneagram is a big tool. That's how we see it uh, in terms of self-awareness. And uh, for every type on the Enneagram, um, we a- offer very specific exercises that you can practice to really look at the fear and not give into it. So that's the first mm-hmm. thing you can actually, like when you become aware, you know what's driving and you can, this is the discovery of choice. You don't have to be driven by it. I'm not saying it's comfortable. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that it uh, over time, it becomes very freeing because we discover a deeper choice. And so uh, a lot of what we do in coaching work is help people identify the fear and uh, and then uh, one of the bigger tools is when they take inventory of how it's showing up in their lives and how they have actually tended to act on it, we, a- we ask them to essentially say, so what can you do to not act on it? How do you, how, do you dis- how do you see it and how do you learn to stay with the discomfort and come up with a deeper way of responding? Mm-hmm. The other tools that we offer uh, are around how, when you act on your fear, how does it affect trust in, in, um, in your relationships and in your organization? Um, we look at trust not as a one or zero thing. There are different elements that go into uh, understanding trust and having a trusting relationship with somebody. But when one of the elements of trust is, is compromised, um, it affects the relationship and we don't know how to talk about it. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. And when we also, so somebody can um, behave in a way that breaks trust for us, but also we behave in a way that breaks trust for somebody else. So h- understanding that, building a language to talk about it, and then doing what we can from our side to fill those trust gaps. I would say the Enneagram itself, one of the key things is once you see something about yourself, you can't unsee it. And so even awareness, when awareness strikes in a way that unveils something new, that alone will start to change behavior. Now, some of us, the, the go-getter types, we're like, okay, great. I know my type. Now solve it for, how do I problem solve my type? How do I fix it? Right. And part of the, 
one of the things we do is slow down in that moment, actually start to slow down because just by like Arasnath mentioned taking inventory, as we start to see these patterns in ourselves and in our lives, automatically we can't keep doing the same thing. And so the, the framework itself is a tool and it's, there's so much complexity and subtlety in this one framework alone. That's why it helps to have a guide to coach mm-hmm. someone through it because there's also rampant mistyping with a framework like this because of the complexity. So then you're, you're, you're basing all your insights <laughs> on having mistyped yourself. That becomes much less effective than uh, being able to, to work with someone who can use it. So Sundish, I mean, like, you know, you, yeah. you've been, you know, through the Enneagram, what, uh, what do you, what are you finding is like, you know, like what, what's sort of moving the needle for you? For me, it's definitely just being aware of the situation at the present moment. Um, and realizing that I'm feeling angry or, um, uh, jealous or you know rushed or in some kind of anxiety if i get a little anxiety i'm just more connected and i and i'm like okay i'm doing i'm feeling this again um and i do this and i get these feelings in this moment but like i'm really trying to understand then is why Hmm. why am i feeling that way and when you when you go down that journey and you actually find out why you do something it's like the weight of the world is like lifted off my shoulders because now I can see myself for what I really, I mean, I'm not happy about it, right? <laughs> but like, at least I know now, okay, like, like, for example, my kids know I love to win and it's a big problem. That's why I'm a type three. So my three kids and my wife know that when we go on family vacation, like a month ago, you know, I just win like a poker game. And everybody's so mad at me, you know, like every, like everyone is so upset, you know, like my youngest one is like, oh, it's not fair. And I'm like, I'm like, why are, why is this happening? Like, oh, it's because they know how much I want to win. You know, they, they, they see it on me. They, they see me, how I'm playing the game, you know? Um, and so I got to like dial that down a little bit, you know, uh, it's a little bit too much sometimes maybe, you know, I don't always have to win everything. Chris, I'll give you one more concrete example of this. So uh, Sandesh mentioned the, the type three, and uh, which is the achiever type, uh, a type that a few of us on this call <laughs> may share, No, not naming any names. But um, so one of the things that happens with this type on the Enneagram is that we are always crafting our image. We're always... We're, we are always in search of our own value and our own worth. And we're much more attuned to how are other people perceiving that value and worth than how I think about it myself. And so one of the things that happens for this type is we start to, we really are always trying to impress. We're always on stage. We're always trying to impress people around us. And in the process, we may reflexively exaggerate or distort things in order to preserve the image that I'm trying to craft. So one of the things that we might ask someone to do is to just 
make a daily list of the ways in which you tried to impress today and do this every day for the next month. And, and let's start to see what happens. And what you start to notice is at first, the ways that I try to impress are quite gross in nature, gro- meaning not subtle. And over time, as mm-hmm. you uncover more and more, you see more and more subtle ways in which I try to impress. When Vipin was talking about, or Vipin is talking about um, the uh, the self-awareness part of it, there is this also this amazing thing that happens too, which is I start to understand other people better because the Enneagram kind of helps me. Like when I, when, when Razanath explains, you know, type, you know, five, six, seven, whatever, there's people in my life that I'm like, Oh my God, that's that person. That's what that, that's that, that personality trait Mm. of the Enneagram. And then when you read more into that Enneagram and you, and you kind of go down and deeper into this, these other people in your lives that you love and, you know, you're just trying to understand them better. This, uh, this level of compassion that comes with it is kind of crazy. Um, I, I, that's, I think why I'm a little more calmer these days because I just don't, I don't sweat the small stuff as I used to, maybe, you know, but Rasana, does that make sense what I'm saying? Right. It's like I, I, I see other people and I'm like, oh, this person is going through their own suffering too. Like they're, the, the reason why they're doing this is not because of that reason. It's because of there is something else underlying. It's their why, you know? Um, and then when you see it in people, then I, I see it as suffering. It's like, oh man, that sucks. And also it's, it's so true. And sometimes, you know, the word empathy, um, which is so commonly used and, you know, there's empathy from the head and empathy from the heart. Empathy actually is only from the heart, but many times, you know, we think our way into empathy, right? But feeling empathy uh, requires for us to understand that my suffering is no different than somebody else's. And when uh, when I know what that suffering feels like, then I can also understand, wow, that's how it feels. I know what that feels like. I know what it means to be in my own prison. And uh, I know what it means to be acting from that place. So when I see somebody else acting from that place, I don't make a moral judgment. It's, it's interesting because, you know, the, the, the path to self-awareness is also the path to awareness of others as well, huh? Naturally. It, it just opens up. Um, it, charity begins at home, right? So <laughs> It's all really amazing stuff. And uh, I think that we all need a little bit you know, more self-awareness, uh, you know, mental health <laughs> and all this. Um, so tell me what's next, you know, for Upbuild. W- where are you guys going with all of this? We have reached a place where uh, we feel very fulfilled uh, with what we are doing. And at the same time, we have reached a place where we are actually overwhelmed with what we think needs to happen. Uh, and what can happen. Um, and so one of the biggest challenges we have is, uh, given the work that we're doing, we uh, we are overwhelmed by, um, by how much more there is to do, and we find ourselves constantly running up against our own limitations in terms of time and energy. Um, and, you know, some people call this a scaling problem. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you also see that uh, work like this can't necessarily be um, automated 
Right. Um, and it requires it requires very thoughtful um, and um, um, very intentional scaling uh, ideas and steps. So what's next for us is to really crack the problem here that preserves, I think, the uh, the culture that we have been able to create with the work, uh, both internally within Upbuild and also externally, but also try to see how we can reach as many people as possible. Uh, and that is a is genuinely a hard problem. Um, we have been we have been there for for a few years now, and we are taking micro steps to try both from a point of view of uh, expanding the team as we preserve the quality of the work that we do, and at the same time trying to leverage technology. The the monks probably didn't have a way to you know solve for the scaling problem either, other than building a bigger monastery, right? <laughs> it's it's true, and at a certain time as a monk, you also see that um, you have to still continue to function within the realm of your own, like what you're being asked to do and what you can do the best, um, without spreading yourself thin. Yeah. So so it's uh it's 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 very interesting. It's also learning to surrender in the process. And uh, I also feel like in learning how to honor my limits, um, I I become more effective. Um, And then I also have to learn how to surrender from a point of view of recognizing that there is a much bigger plan than what my myopic ego can ever lay out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think I think that's, you know, that's important, you know, like the appropriate setting of boundaries, you know, for your personal well-being you know, you can't help anybody else if you, you you're not, you know, in a place where you can do that, right? Uh, and what also I've realized is uh, the boundaries that you set two years ago um, suddenly shift when you have a child. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, the landscape of life is always keeping you on your toes, uh, and so it, it, there is no substitute but but uh, to be fully present to what is being asked of you at that moment. And to show up fully for that, and that's not easy stuff to do. I mean, I wish, I wish there was a quick fix to this. If you could, you know, just <laughs> if there's a button I could push. <laughs> that's the that's what I was sharing when I said uh, surrender. The idea yeah. is learning that there is no quick fix other than showing up. <laughs> this world is is um, at each other's throats, and I think so much of that has to do with anxiety that people are experiencing right and i think you know you spoke to that anxiety and and like where that that kind of comes from and i think um you know having tools like this to sort of get to the root of of some of those things uh, you know could be really beneficial to our society at large so i i appreciate the the stuff that you're doing and i think that um you know it's it's a it's a really interesting idea and it seems to be helping helping sundish a lot and i just want to say you know thanks for taking some time out of your day and and coming in and telling us about it and uh really appreciate uh the stuff that you guys are doing thanks so much thank you yeah thank you so much for having us and for allowing us to share some of this with with you guys and with your audience thanks for watching i'd love to hear from you in the comments and if you like what you saw please click that like button and think about subscribing that subscription really helps the channel a ton and i will see you in the next video.